there's one game that can transition from real life to online, it's chess. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, technology, disruption, media, engagement, brands, all different kinds of things. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Hi, Joe. How are you? Cool. So, so yeah, everything's good. You know, so, so yeah. just the level set here. Uh, we are doing this on, of all days, Friday the 13th. Uh, and this morning, before we get to our guest, there was a historic announcement, which we'd be remiss in not mentioning, which is this morning, the Miami Marlins named Kim Ang is the first female general manager, uh, not just in Major League Baseball, but in professional sports, at least the five leagues in the United States. So an amazing day when you think about glass ceilings that, assuming that the election continues to go the way it is, continues to have been broken between Kamala Harris last week and Kim Ang today. It's really an impressive thing. And frankly, uh, when our colleague Scott Rosner texted me before, he's like, what the, how the hell did it take this long to get here? Which is, wow. I, all right, well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. And yeah. that is an amazing milestone. So great for the industry. Great to hear that. Um, there's also another announcement that wasn't quite as positive that we should mention, which is the decision by the Ivy League to cancel winter sports, which I know is devastating to lots of people. Um, and Joe, it's a reminder how serious this is and how hard it's going to be for these uh, winter leagues, such as the NBA, which is only, what, six weeks, five or six weeks away from restarting, uh, to do this safely. It's going to be really, really challenging, which also helps us turn our attention to sports that don't have this issue. Uh, like traditional sports have. And one of them we're going to talk about today. So why don't you set it up? We are. Um, you know, we do like to talk about coaching and strategy and leadership and innovation. Uh, and we have a guest today. Uh, Robert Hess is one of the preeminent voices or faces of chess now being viewed by millions of people, a grandmaster, graduate of Stevenson, and graduate of Yale. Uh, Stuyvesant, right? What did I say, Steve? I said Stuyvesant, excuse okay, me. Stuyvesant. I was say, where's Stevenson? <laughs> Stevenson's in the Bronx, actually. <laughs> and, and the reason why I say, uh, Eddie Pinckney played at Villanova. Went oh, to that's okay. different. Good. We don't have to go there, anyway. Yeah. So, um, but Robert's got a really interesting story about chess engagement. Obviously, a lot of people are probably watching The Queen's Gambit now on Netflix. Uh, the rise of chess in the pandemic in terms of young people being more involved with people of all ages because of the ability to stream, uh, the disruption that it has presented, but also kind of the game itself. And uh, before we get started, there's also a tie to another good friend of ours, Zach Wiener at Overtime. Uh, and that's how I came to meet Robert, which I'll tell the quick story is, so I was working for the basketball tournament, um, which is the, the summer kind of winner take all tournament. And one of the finals a couple of years ago was at Fordham. And the sports quotient, which was a, a site that Robert had founded, was covering us. And literally, I met and talked to Robert and Zach on a fire escape outside Rose Hill Gym in the Bronx. And that's how we came to know each other. And then obviously, Zach, I, I don't remember Robert, if Zach had started overtime at that point, but overtime was just starting to grow at that point. So that was probably four years ago. Uh, and here we are now talking to Robert about chess and disruption and digital sports and everything else. So Robert Hess, welcome to the Cusp Show. 
Hey, Tom, Joe, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, we've made it a long way since that fire escape at Fordham, but Joe, always appreciative of you reaching out and having me on here. Yeah, so, so why don't you kind of walk us through? I mean, it's really an amazing story, not just for people involved in chess, but how you got to where you are, starting at a young age, really some early success, but how you've kind of morphed that into a career of coaching and, and, and commentating and bringing more people to really kind of the fun and interesting part of chess that maybe four or five years ago couldn't have happened if, if uh, you know, a platform like Twitch wasn't available. Well, at first I have to mention that it's probably inevitable that I play chess considering my last name. You can't spell chess without hats. That's what they always say. They remind me day in, day out. They don't know that I wrote my college application essay, what's in a name, considering both of my parents' first names start with C. So I was literally born from two wow. chesses. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I grew up playing chess because my dad taught me, my older sister, and my brother, when we were about, you know, around, I was about five, I'd say, and my school I went to at the time, they had an after school chess program, and I met the only chess coach I ever had, a Russian grandmaster by the name of Miran Sher, uh, sadly he passed earlier this year, but Miran was my only chess coach, and even though you know, other people couldn't quite comprehend like what's going on here because chess in a sense is a language of its own. My parents could see that Mira and I got along fabulously. Like when we were sitting at the chess board in my apartment, it was like, we were in a different world. And you see that in the Queen's Gambit and no spoilers because I'm only four episodes in, uh, but you see that when Beth Harmon is looking at the ceiling and the moves are playing out and all these different variations and chess is a language based on the notation of the game and how the pieces move. So at a young age, I was fascinated with how, you know, just the world that it presented and particularly the Knights, the way they move something about being a kid and an L shaped moving piece was fascinating to me. So Robert, were, were, were those moves more obvious to you when you were taking the tranquilizers before bed? <laughs> you know, that part of the show seems a little fictional. People yeah. are not taking tranquilizers before chess games. It certainly would not help. Okay. Yeah, I, I found that to be odd, too. And uh, by the way, I didn't know initially what those green pills were. Joe, did you know when you were watching? I thought it was speed, to tell you the truth. I didn't. Think yeah, because I didn't think tranquilizers and chess went well together. Um, yeah. But you would know better than, than us on that one. <laughs> I wouldn't know because I haven't done them. Okay. But okay. yeah, I think we're all at a loss. Yeah. So, right. so walk us through kind of um, your high school, going to Yale, becoming a coach, becoming a grandmaster, what that was like, um, you know, your interest in, in, uh, in the game and obviously, and then everything else that played into the analytics with the launch of the sports quotient, where you met Zach uh, and, you know, and how you kind of got to today. And then we'll kind of talk about, you know, everything you are doing today. Sure thing. Uh, for my chess career, I would say where it became obvious that chess would play a substantial role in my future was in third grade. It's pretty early, but I won the city, the state, and the national championships for uh, up until third graders. So that was a pretty clear indication that, hey, uh, things are going well. The coaching's working. My level of play is quite high. And that started taking me to international tournaments as well. And in chess, eight-year-olds are playing against 80-year-olds. There, there are certain age-restrictive tournaments that you can enter, but for the most part, you're competing against every and anybody from all over the globe. So that was another cool element, and I continued progressing. And in general, you reach this inflection point in chess because, honestly, there's not that much money as a player in chess, and that's really not where the money is. 
So uh, you reach this point where you're like, are, are you going to continue playing? You're getting into high school. You want to be involved in other social activities. But I stuck with it. And even at Stuyvesant High School, where there's a, quite a heavy course load, I'm taking AP classes. Um, some of my classmates include a race car driver, uh, an Olympic fencer uh, my year, and of course, Zach Wiener, who um, everybody knows from overtime, who's one of my very best friends. So we had a very intensive academic atmosphere, but still I would leave for a couple weeks and I would ask well in advance for the schoolwork. I would travel to France or to Greece or to wherever the term was at the time, play for two weeks, very intense competitions, and then immediately be thrown back into like seven different tests, sometimes multiple in the same subject. So it was very difficult to balance school and chess, but I always found that I was at my best doing both. It's like, being a full-time student wasn't completely fulfilling for me and being a full-time chess player, if you will, wasn't completely fulfilling, but I graduate from high school. I, I became a grandmaster at the age of 17. I also finished second place in the U S championship in 2009. That's overall um, all the best players in the country. And then I took a year off, participated in events across the globe in Iceland and Denmark and China. I was a member of the United States chess team and there's not really, teams in chess except for certain uh, events like the chess olympiad our olympics and the world team championship and then after that year off i decided to uh, go to yale so so robert i know this gets uh, asked in the queen's gambit but i'd love to get your answer because I, I didn't think it was satisfactory in the show what does it mean to be a grandmaster how yeah. do you get that designation and is it and is it true that it's a lifetime designation like being on the supreme court it is true unless you cheat and then they can demote your title, which has happened. I'm sure we'll get into cheating in this conversation eventually, but it is a lifetime title. So I am a grandmaster for life. And the way you become a grandmaster is in chess, there is an ELO rating system. And the higher your rating, the better you are. So for context, um, Magnus Carlsen, who is the highest rated chess player in history, the current world chess champion, he is rated currently uh, 2860, 2860 something and change. And to become a grandmaster, you need to surpass the 2500 rating and have three different performances called norms where you compete and do sufficiently well against grandmaster competition. So you have these three performances in international events against very tough opponents and you get that title and become a grandmaster for life. Wow. So so in that latter stage of, of those um, of those kinds of, uh, I call them tests, is it like all or nothing? Either you win the match and get a lot of points or you lose and get zero. Or if, if you had a draw, you, you get a certain number or whatever. Like in other words, could you lose and still uh, progress? Yeah, so chess tournaments typically are nine round events and you don't get eliminated. And so if you lose your first game, your level of opposition will not be as strong unless you're playing in a round robin, in which case you play all the people in the field. But in an open Swiss tournament, you know, the better you do, the higher rated your opponents will be because the better players typically win. So in those events, especially if you are taking two weeks off from school to play in them, you really want to get off to a hot start. Otherwise, it's I won't call it a completely wasted trip, but you're not getting what you're coming for. So there was a quite substantial degree of psychological pressure in that sense where, hey, if you're making this commitment and this investment to go play in this event and 
sacrifice your time in school, just in terms of classwork, not to mention social activities, then you want to do well in those events. And I would say that most grandmasters uh, do not go to university. They you know, pursue that path because chess is so hyper-specialized. But yeah, you can lose a game and still bounce back and beat the other players and do well in the event. Hey, Joe, don't you feel like we have to ask Robert whether he ever did anything like what Beth Hartman did when she went to the high school and played like 20 players simultaneously? I, I want to talk about that and <laughs> speed chess. And, you know, it's funny. Before we get to that, I keep when anytime I say something about Grandmaster, I think of Grandmaster Flash. Yes. The or, message. You know, I, I picture somebody like like Luke Skywalker robes walking around, too. Right. So, um, But, yeah, talk a little bit about actually the experience, Robert, and we want to talk a little bit about Yale before we get to today too, but speed chess, playing multiple people, um, you know, you, you see the legendary stories of, you know, these guys playing in Washington Square Park or other places. Are those things real, somewhat real? And, you know, how did, how does someone like a grandmaster participate in those things, if at all? Yeah, they're extremely real. Um, speed chess is super popular amongst all players. And at the grandmaster level, we love it because you can play many games in the period of time that you'd play one traditional game, which is slower pace. Of course, the quality is worse, but at a certain point, you don't care about that. You're having fun. You mm. can talk some trash as well. And that's what you see in the parks all the time is people just going at each other, both on the board and off it as well. And the playing multiple people, it's called a simul, simultaneous exhibition. That's also quite popular because it gives players who otherwise would suffered defeat every single time pretty much they play a stronger player this gives them a chance because you're multitasking and in fact joe the last time i saw you at the uh, sloan sports analytics conference yep. i did a blindfold multiple board speed chess <laughs> sign right so um you know you're playing several boards at the same time and obviously adding the component of being blindfolded makes it more difficult but in general um simuls are quite common when i was at yale i did something like a 50 plus board simul which honestly was extremely stressful for my feet because you're walking around a ton going from board to board for many hours i think it lasted four hours and i was just exhausted afterwards how do you do a blindfolded chess competition all right. Well, now that you're watching The Queen's Gambit, you see Beth. Uh, there's one scene in particular where this doesn't spoil anything for those of listeners who have not yet watched the show, where she's looking at the board and the pieces are moving by themselves. Right. And for most people, what's going on? And for me, I was like, this is a great illustration of how chess is played, because yeah. most of the action which doesn't make chess a spectator sport, sorry to say, but is taking place in your head. You are visualizing the path forward. So when you have a position on the board, you're thinking, okay, if I make this bishop move here, this is what my opponent's going to respond. And they branch out. So with every position, you may have four equally looking, uh, good looking moves to you. And then within each res response, there could be three nice responses for your opponent. So there are all these branches and people, I guess, like to think of it in game theory ways or all the branches, but chess is that complex and that rich. And most of that takes place in our heads. And that's what allows us to play these games blindfolded. So just a quick follow-up on that. So in those scenes, not just from the show, but also from some watching some chess on uh, Twitch or, or whatever, when you see the rapid fire exchange in like really super competitive matches, you know, full, full games, when you see the rapid fire, like boom, 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 
are you suggesting that you've thought through, I mean, the, both players have thought through what's coming next and you can immediately respond literally within a second or two? Yes, exactly that. Okay. You know, have you, um, we'll talk about how the strategy plays into business and other sports, but I'm curious, have you ever talked to other athletes, like professional athletes? Because I, watching the show, but also being around chess for most of my life, I always thought of the best chess players almost as point guards, where, where they're seeing a game develop the best point guards. And I've heard Jason Kidd talk about this, where he's seeing things three or four literal moves down the line before other people see them. And that's how they're able to position people and get them in. Have you ever talked to athletes, whether it's a quarterback or, or, you know, point guards or, or other people about the, the similar, uh, the, the similar prospects that you go through in your mind before they actually happen? It's funny. I don't really like to associate chess with sports in that way. I think it's done too much as it is because they're trying to make a connection for people to latch onto. I do think that the, ways we think as chess players is very valuable in other disciplines. Uh, I just would be hard to say the action of a point guard resembles what chess players do just because, well, I'm not an NBA point guard, obviously. And it's, it's just different, even if there are some characteristics that are beneficial to both worlds. Cool. Um, you mentioned 17. Walk us through Yale. And then Tom, we should probably get on to you know, where Robert is today and actually the, you know, the relationship between he and Zach too, because I think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was it like to be at Yale for, as, a, as a grandmaster at that point? Well, as I was suggesting earlier, chess isn't really popular in colleges because if you are going to be a competitive chess player, you are not really going to university most of the time. So if you look mm -hmm. at the top players in the world, they have specialized in chess and they don't really have time to be taking full course loads of study because they need to devote eight plus hours a day to the game of chess. And they are much stronger than I am. And it, it's really a sight to behold. And I am amazed by their level of play. But when I got to Yale, I was sort of trending away from chess. And mm -hmm. I still was interested. I still played a couple of US championships at the end of my school year, which was an absolute mess saying, hey, can I delay my exam or take it early? Uh, can I submit my paper to you from afar? It, it's not an easy thing to do when you're in university. But at that point in my life, I was thinking that I wouldn't actually be in chess professionally. And it is somewhat surprising to me that I still am. And I'm glad that I am. But if you asked myself, me when I was 16, what would you be doing? Chess would not have been among the top few answers, funny enough. But, but after school, you somehow found the time to co-found a digital media business. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, nice transition, Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Zach Winner and I went to high school together. And Zach is also quite a good chess player, I might add. And we went to high school together. We're always talking sports. We're both huge sports lovers, obviously. And while we were in college, he was at Penn, I was at Yale. Um, along with my brother and our another co-founder, Leo, we just were talking about things and like, well, why don't we start this? Because when you hear that somebody scored 30 points and had five assists, what does that mean? That means nothing to me. And it never meant that much to us. And so we were trying to figure out a way to whittle down these vague numbers or the box score stats and put them in, in a more analytical context. And while we no longer operate and it was a great run, I mean, it really did learn a lot about how to reposition and kind of 
shift the focus of the conversation about what has happened in a game. And that's honestly the same in any results oriented line where even in chess, you win the game. It doesn't mean you played well. And so that's what I think we were really trying to hone in on and make better. Um, related to that, I know, and that lasted, it sounds like for a while. And did, did, did overtime grow out of that sports quotient? Well, I would say that many of Zach's connections initially were grew from uh, sports quotient. Zach is a complete go-getter. He met Dan Porter, who right. uh, helps run overtime, of course, uh, yeah. through a meeting actually about the sports quotient, but it's a completely separate entity. And Zach, you know, when we were working on sports quotient, he ended up, he was working full-time, then switched to overtime actually wasn't called overtime back then and of course has done tremendous work there so uh, all throughout the sports quotient history we were doing our separate things whether it was university or chess or um, for Zach he was working in finance for a little bit and then overtime. Robert something we've talked about a lot in in our podcast and and in the program is the importance of Twitch and the evolution of Twitch as a platform for all kinds of things ranging from obviously video game streaming to political forums like Bernie Sanders had a, a pretty big presence last year, for example. Tell us about the growth of chess on Twitch, because I know it's a very popular subject or topic on the, on the platform. For sure. And chess has seen an incredible boom since the pandemic. Uh, of course, the pandemic is incredibly unfortunate, but if there's one game or sport, if you will, I don't really consider chess a sport, honestly, but you know, if there's one game that can transition from real life to online, it's chess. It is literally the same thing. The level of play may be a bit higher in person for these long time virtual events, but you are watching the same pieces and the same players do their thing. And in fact, if you want utter silence, you don't go to the library, you go to a chess tournament because the game is played without any talking, unlike what you might see in the Queen's Gambit. But um, you get to see the personalities of the players by going to Twitch. And that's the great thing about it. You've seen the rise of uh, Hikaru Nakamura, who is the biggest chess streamer on Twitch, often with 10,000 people watching. He signed with an esports organization. He's a part of TSM and other chess players have signed with esports orgs. But in terms of the popularity of chess, when earlier this summer, chess.com, which is the biggest chess site, hosted this tournament called PogChamps, there were over 115,000 concurrent viewers that wow. across the channels. That is huge and something that chess couldn't really expect or even hope for throughout its history. But going to a different medium and different platforms has been essential to the growth and vibrancy of the chess community. And how have you personally been involved with that? So I do a ton of commentating and in particular for chess.com, but also for uh, if an organizer reaches out to me to cover the event, uh, I'll do that. But I do a heck of a lot of commentary. And I also have my own channel, which sometimes if an event's not being covered by any of the major um, platforms or I just see it and want to talk about chess or play chess, I'll go on my own personal Twitch channel. So it has been really great to see that growth. And if I am commentating on my chess channel, my own personal channel, sometimes I'll have a couple thousand viewers just tuning in and listening and asking questions. And it becomes almost like a personal lesson, right? There may be a crowd with you, but it's the same as in the sense as like an open course, but live feedback and interaction. And if there's any game that you can see 
the future in, right? I see a step-by-step progression. It is chess. I can explain to you, this is what just happened. Here's why it happened. Here's what I think will happen next. Here's why what I think should happen has not happened. And here's the avenue that the player is going down. So it's all explanatory and digestible for a broader audience. I think that now more than any time, the broader public is understanding that because chess for a long period of time was seen, oh, only these geniuses and rocket scientists play chess. And I always push back against that notion because what rocket science do you know that is also a chess grandmaster? You don't. And that's not to take away from one or the other, but I do think the misconception has hurt the growth of chess because I can't tell you the number of people who've told me over time, oh, you play chess. Well, I'm not smart enough to do that. And I say, yes, you are. If there's one thing that my career hopes to address and help people with is that you can learn chess. And the amount of people who reach out to me saying, I have improved several hundred points, or I've really found like I'm getting stronger and understanding more as a player just by watching you talk about chess, that means the world to me. I don't do it for you know the number of viewers I have. I, I will be happily in front of one single viewer commentating on a game of chess to help people understand. I see my role in that sense as an educator. So, so two things. One is Tom and I actually know a former rocket scientist who is good at chess. That being Israel <laughs> Kuchars is now the C, uh, CBO at DraftKings, who's done both. Um, so that's the one that I could think I of. I didn't know he was a good chess player. He never he told me that. Well, Ezra says he's good I'm at everything. I'm surprised he hasn't told me that. Yeah, he'll tell you. <laughs> ask him next time. Uh, but um, you talk about the audience. Who is the audience? You know, what's kind of the demo of the audience? Because you talked a little bit about gaming and esports and how there's been a little bit of a migration. Is it similar to that audience? And how has it changed since you've been 17 to where you are now? I think with Twitch in particular, the age of the audience has become younger. So chess, if you, if people stereotype chess, if I'm being frank, and I don't agree with this, but they see it as like an older Soviet game. And the Soviet Union was very proud of their chess culture and they had multiple world champions. They dominated the chess landscape for such a long period of time. But I think that's how people envision the chess world is old Russian men, if I'm being completely mm -hmm. blunt about it. So I think that with Twitch and seeing all of these different faces on chess, some of whom are, uh, you know, older Russian men, some of whom are, you know, 15 years old and just enjoying the trash talking and quick play. There's 30 second chess, there's 15 second chess where it's not really so much about the chess anymore and more about the mouse speed, but they understand the competitive nature of it. And Twitch definitely has helped skew the audience both younger and I think even more international than it already has been because chess is an extremely global game. How's the gender balance? Oh, it's skewed so heavily male. And yeah. I don't well, maybe, know. Maybe Beth Harmon will inspire a new generation of female chess players. I really hope so. I also coach the U.S. women's chess team and you hear U.S. women's chess team. Why is there a women's team? And just because of the history, there have been so few women in chess historically speaking. And at first they weren't allowed to compete in events. It is also a social issue where historically, you know, if you're teaching kids how to play a game that wasn't reserved for the young girls in um, the classrooms. So I think it is becoming better, but that doesn't mean that enough has been done. There's still so much room to grow. And I, I don't know the data off the top of my head, but there are more women playing chess now than there have been in the past, but still not nearly enough. The po uh, population in the chess world, it's a very slim percentage. Um, 
talk a little bit about for people who have made, maybe they saw Searching for Bobby Fischer, another great young movie about a, a young potential chess champion, or now with The Queen's Gambit, or they've seen some stuff on Twitch, or, um, you know, they, they follow her and there was a piece on CBS where I saw your face suddenly come up on TV a couple of weeks ago on CBS Sunday morning. Um, what are the benefits? Like, what are some of the skills that you learn from a strategy standpoint that apply to whatever it is that you want to do in your life? That's a great question. I would say that there are numerous, but if I had to whittle them down, one is individual responsibility. You do not own the result of your game as you do in chess and pretty much anything else that I've been a part of. If you win or lose, you can't say, oh, the pieces I used today were slightly heavier than the pieces I usually use. But there's no excuses except for the way you played the game. And that's obviously not true in, as a, you know, in team sports, right? You can put blame on your teammates or your coach or whatnot. In chess, it's really about the way you are playing. So that's one element, the strategic thinking, right? The ability to see ahead and also to patiently do so. Because in traditional chess tournaments, the ones that you're playing for the world championship, for example, the games can last many hours. My longest game ever was eight plus hours. So you are sitting there and you're not moving until you're sure, but there's also the element of clock management. You need to be responsible with your time because there is a timer that you're using and you need to make sure that not only are you participating in a strong manner over the board, but that you're not wasting too much of your time because you have enough time saved up for some critical moments. So those definitely are big parts of the world of chess. And uh, there, there are many more. There's preparation. Every single game that you play, especially at the high level, you spend typically hours you know, researching your opponent. So if I know I'm playing Joe tomorrow, I see this is Joe's history of games. I see exactly the openings he likes to play. And now I'm going to try to adjust my approach to what I see as his weaknesses. And some people have a style where they like to play the same opening and they're really well-versed in that specific opening. Other players have a more versatile style. I would say I'm in that category where I'm willing to play any opening in a given game, but now I have breadth, but not depth. So the preparation is really essential to high-level chess. Hey, Robert, Joe and I are old enough to remember um, a big moment in American chess history, which is when Bobby Fischer played Boris Spassky. I, I don't, I forget what year that was. Then in the seventies, nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, yeah, I was like a little kid. I guess Joe and I. You know, I, I remember this image. That's how I got started. Right, and so the question is, um, I'm, I'm sure you. Uh, it was well before you were born, but that was kind of a moment in time where, because I played chess as a kid, not competitively, but for fun. I remember reading um, what was Bobby Fischer's first book. Uh, remember that was really popular. Um, um, is it my sixty memorable games, or I don't know which one was first. Whatever, but like you know, my like tips for playing chess. But I remember having that paperback as a kid. Yes, so when done. so when that became a big um, international story, I would say Joe, that was because oh, it was God. you. It was kind of a, a proxy of the Cold War uh, for the first time in a game. In this case, chess. And it was fascinating. We did not have Twitch. We did not have digital media at the time. So Joe, I don't even remember if those games were on TV. I think it was live on PBS. It was wow. Okay. And actually, as you guys watch, if you've already seen the, the Queen's Gambit, that kind of plays out over the course of the show. Too. But my question, Robert, is this, that Bobby Fischer became this legendary, larger than life, mysterious guy, obviously very interesting life. Is there anybody out there 
to be the face of chess, to help drive interest and awareness beyond Beth Harmon, who's a fictional character? Well, I think that the obsession in the sense with Bobby Fischer is because he's American, if I'm being yes. yeah, that's transparent. Fair. Mm-hmm. So Magnus Carlsen is an international sensation. He has been the best player in chess for 10 years. He's just turned or is he about to turn 30 years old? And he's from Norway and he's modeled. He's been in an episode of The Simpsons. He's been in a commercial with uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, wow. I think Maria Sharapova uh, for a Porsche commercial. And he just, you know, he's done many different things. And he is a hot ticket in terms of in speaking engagements. And he's done something with Bill Gates. I mean, he's done everything, right? And in a way, what I'm suggesting is that. You know, sometimes it seems that America drives the uh, global trends, et cetera. I, I don't think that needs to be the case, and I hope that it's not the case. Uh, but with Bobby Fischer in particular in that time, it was. And the allure of Bobby Fischer was that mystique. And I think that is what I was hinting at earlier, is that in chess, these people are seen as just outright geniuses. And I don't like the word genius in the first place, but some chess players are extraordinarily bright. I will not take that away from them. But just because you're an exceptional chess player does not necessarily mean you are a quote-unquote genius. And you don't really hear that associated with other disciplines so much. Like somebody who is brilliant at their profession is said to be a brilliant artist or a brilliant scientist. But somehow I feel like chess has this mystique and because a lot of kids play it so they have a connection with it and then they think that all these people who are very good at chess are these masterminds i think it does a disservice to the game of chess even if some of the best players are these super bright individuals who could succeed in other areas and other disciplines so um you know to answer your question more matter-of-factly i do think we've seen a great rise of popularity in chess with hikaru nakamura his twitch channel is one of the most popular twitch channels in the entire world whenever magnus carlson does anything the entire country of norway stops like they have done studies on this and you can see that a large percentage of the population is like oh we got to watch. It's Magnus playing. He is a national hero. In India, the former world champion Vishwanathan Anand, he is an absolute legend in the country. And it's becoming increasingly popular in India, and especially during the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, in part led by a comedian, Samai Reina. He does a ton of chess streaming on YouTube. And the audience wow. for matches that Indians are involved with have gone through the roof. So it is really a global game, as I was saying. Players from Armenia, from the from Ukraine, from Azerbaijan, uh, from China, countries that honestly plenty of people haven't even heard of have very strong chess players, and it is so international. Uh, but I think that removing this like genius label from all good players and getting to see the humanity of the players by them streaming and just interacting with chat and talking about a variety of subjects like movies and music and maybe politics, but it makes them more human and that makes the game itself more accessible, I'd say. Cool. And, and I, you couldn't not talk about all those things without mentioning somebody like Kasparov who crossed over and is still crossing over and commentating on politics as much as anything else right now. He was kind of that, I think that bridge from that era. Uh, so a couple things. Robert, tell us there is a connection in terms of when you became grandmaster between you and Bobby Fischer, correct? In terms of age. I think Bobby Fischer was younger than I uh, yeah, but was. It sounds like you were the second youngest 
or the youngest since the youngest American since Bobby Fischer to become a grandmaster. I'm making, yep. maybe making it up, but I don't up. even know those numbers because I never yeah. really paid attention to them. But chess has definitely changed, you know, overall since then. But Bobby Fischer, undoubtedly, we may share the same first name. He was a much stronger chess player than I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, before we get into some of our, our final questions, talk a little bit about the gamesmanship. You mentioned you can't get thrown out of being a grandmaster unless you cheat in some way. Uh, but how much of that gamesmanship does go on, the mental back and forth? And also, you know, obviously, over time, sports quotient were tied to analytics. You talked about preparation. Is analytics part of that now? So, so those two things, the gamesmanship and the analytics. Oh, analytics is a, a tough one. And um, gamesmanship, I'll, I'll start there. You know, when you're playing an opponent, you may realize that their style is not conducive to success in certain types of positions. So you do cater your opening choice or a certain decision where you can say, I can make the more tactical choice, but it's riskier for me, or I can play the calmer strategic approach, which keeps the position balanced. And depending on your opponent, you may choose a different line. And also depending on the tournament situation, right? Whereas if you are leading the field, you may take it safer. Whereas if you're trying to mount a comeback, you will take some risk. So there's definitely a ton of psychology in chess. Uh, it is played in silence, as I mentioned. And some people like to stare at the other player. Oftentimes you're just looking at the board. You can walk around when it's not your move, uh, but people have different ticks and different tells as well. But for the most part, it's completely transparent. There's no hidden information. It is a game of everything's out in front of you. So if you discover the opportunities, it's yours for the taking. And as we get to analytics, uh, there has been a change in how chess has been approached, that's for sure, with uh, more neural network resources. Um, you know, everybody was talking about alpha zero for a while. Um, you know, there's the more traditional chess engines that look at and assess positions based on Set the pawns, right? The pawn is the least valuable piece, and it's uh, you know the uh, set the pawns, just how to evaluate the positions. Whereas neural networks do approach the game in a different way, and the top level players they're using all resources possibly available to them, and so chess certainly has taken a different path with all these advancements. The the style of play has changed, uh, certainly with respect to certain players. And just one follow up on that, from the business standpoint, you talked about Magnus Carlsen sponsorships. Um, has the streaming uh, and chess TV and all the things happen opened up more brand partnerships, opportunities for professional players going forward that didn't exist before? A thousand percent. And I think that we will see a continued wave of chess players signing with esports teams. And that's something that was unfathomable. In Why is that? Why, what's the connection? I, perhaps they're trying to run their own chess tournaments online. What Magnus Carlsen has done during the pandemic with his uh, Magnus Chess Tour, uh, he created an event with the top players and it was extremely well watched. And chess.com had you know, PogChamps, which was taking streamers who do not play chess or casually play chess and having them play chess tournaments against each other. That was also a very popular, very different events. The Magnus Chess Tour played on Chess 24, but still extremely popular. And I think that with the likes of, as I mentioned, Akara Nakamura and some other signings to various uh, esports teams, they probably want to compete, right? I am not much of a gamer myself, so I don't know the intricacies of League of Legends or all these other games, but they have a team of players and they go directly head to head with their other teams. And I guess chess also can do that. And it did take some 
you know, some not courage, but it, it took a bit of a risk, I guess, to go out and sign a chess player to your esports organization when what's the landscape like? What is it going to mean for our uh, team? But with all these other joining in and signing players, perhaps there will be a circuit of online chess mm. and teams will be going out and claiming victories and, and titles and things of that nature. So it's, it's a lot different now, for sure. Robert, have you had the chance to either play or at least meet Magnus? Yeah, I've met Magnus a ton of times. So if I'm hired to do an event, actually the last event I did in person was in the Netherlands and Magnus was competing there. So I've never played Magnus in a formal event, uh, sadly. Chess is very insular at the top level, which I also think is it's a different problem. That's a very chess specific problem, but it would be like in tennis, if instead of going through some of the lower ranked players, if, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, et cetera, just played each other over and over again, that's kind of what chess is like. And they are trying to push away from that to give right. more of a floor to other players, but because there's not much money in chess, not in playing chess, that this, you know, you have your set number of players, essentially they compete in a tour. They make a good income, which they deserve. I'm not trying to say otherwise, but it, after the top, say, 20, 25 players, there's such a uh, downward trajectory in terms of financial opportunities. Yeah, just a quick follow-up on that, because it, it seems like you mentioned Magnus's, uh, I forget what the phrase was, the, the tournament the, 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 uh, the tournament he started, the Magnus something? Yeah, the Magnus chess tour. Ch chess tour. That it seems like it'd be a good opportunity in light of the technology and the interest right now to do um, unofficial special events, kind of like what golf's doing with the match, you know, with Phil Mickelson and Tiger and, and Peyton Manning, another one's coming up in uh, two weeks. Um, that, it seems like the time is ripe for something like that. So for example, if you were to be so bold as to reach out to Magnus or his people and say, I have an idea for, for a live event that, I don't know, maybe it's a, like a, a digital pay-per-view or something like that, where you do some sort of creative structure uh, of a couple of hour chess event, like that, that sounds like it could work these days. Yeah, and that's actually sort of the model is, for example, yesterday I was commentating in the Speed Chess Championship, which is on chess.com and Hikaru Nakamura is actually playing and Magnus Carlsen is also competing in it. So is their rematch inevitable? That's the essential question, but they're on opposite sides of the bracket as the one and two seeds. And in the final with you know, tens of thousands of dollars at stake, you know, who will reign supreme. So that actually is what has been happening, whether it's on okay. the Magnus tour or various events. And Hikaru and Magnus in particular have been going at it the entire pandemic. They have had incredible numbers of people watching their matches. And it's been exhilarating that both the players are enjoying it, the spectators are loving it. And that thing about chess is why not just translate what you have in person to online where it's more broadly available to a much larger audience. And that's exactly what's happening, Twitch and YouTube, and uh, they're playing a huge role in that. And there are plenty of sponsorships that are being um, had and brand deals with uh, the companies hosting the tournament. I know chess.com and chess for both have some sponsored tournaments. And so those partnerships are real and they will only continue. So they, uh, and actually, before we get to our last question, that was my question is, so there are actual, Consumer brand opportunities. If someone represents a chess player or a tournament, you could go to, I don't know, Hugo Boss or a timing company like, um, you know, Bulova, just picking a watch. Um, those exist. 
And uh, are they growing? And where do you see, like, if you looked at this three years from now, do you see kind of like, you know, I don't want to say the NASCAR or the, the patch that you could potentially wear when you're playing or a hat. Do those things actually exist or could they exist going forward? Uh, they're definitely in the process of existing and certainly there have already been uh, sponsorships for events, right? You'll see, uh, I don't know, remember off the top of my head all of the uh, okay. names of them, but you'll see, you know, this speech is championship brought to you by whomever and sure. they're having big deals. Um, I know that certain events have been considered being um, the rights being acquired by some bigger stations to cover and I'm sort of intentionally being vague because I do have some yep. information that I'm not really privy to share, but um, definitely for these online events, there is a lot of conversation with big name companies to uh, work on deals. And it's great for chess because that kind of thing definitely will help so many chess players and I, I'm making no secret of it. Chess playing has never been lucrative. Chess coaching, yes, that's a very stable and good living, but chess playing has not. So I am hoping that with the increase in viewership, with the branded opportunities, with companies seeing the value in chess, not just from a, hey, this is a game that really helps enhance your line of thinking, but wait a second, there's a huge audience here and that's a market opportunity. Let's go for it. So I do think that it will help just the entire uh, atmosphere, the entire world of chess. I'm expecting DraftKings to, to put their logo on the board, Tom. I think <laughs> that's great. Robert, are you still playing competitively? I play very rarely. In 2019, I played in one tournament uh, over the board, you know, a long time control tournament. I play online in plenty of blitz games and i can be found on my phone at three in the morning oh i should be sleeping i'll just play one more game of blitz on my phone no big deal but in terms of serious competition i have not been a kind of a devoted chess player for a while i've shifted towards commentating coaching and writing and sort of public you know speaking engagements nice what's the difference between blitz and speed it's the same so oh, okay i, I don't wasn't blitz sure chess was, yeah. is mostly played with three minutes on the clock right. Mm -hmm. And there's bullet chess, which is one minute. And then there's these days there's hyper bullet, which is 30 seconds per player. And like I said, that's not really much chess anymore. It is fascinating to see people just make all these moves just, I mean, instantaneously. It's crazy. But um, the you know, longest chess is still seen as the most proper. I know some people don't have time for that. They definitely have time to watch it. But I do believe with more viewership in the quicker time controls for a change, People who are not so invested in chess say, hey, I kind of like that player. Let me follow them. I think that chess had the idea wrong where let's just keep doing our thing and we'll be in our own world. And it's for the, um, you know, the traditional, the, the real best chess is played in these circles and in these places far across the world without the audience. And yeah, I want to, as a chess player, as a chess lover, as a grandmaster myself, I want to keep that level as high as possible but it's also not sustainable. Most of the events are sponsored by benefactors, which is not a business model. And so I do think that nowadays people see players compete in all these events like, oh, I'm a fan of, of, of that person. Let me see what they're up to. And then now they're playing in a, a long time control game. I don't have the uh, bandwidth to spend four hours watching them, but I'll, I'll tune in, I'll check it out. And I do think that will help increase the audience going forward. 
Tom, you want to uh, take us home with our last? Yeah, I got to ask one more quick question about chess. I find this fascinating because you started so young, as a lot of players do. If you took two um, young people, let's say eight-year-olds of similar intelligence in terms of IQ, and you coached one of them intensively on chess, would how quickly would they be that much better than the? Let's say they both played casual chess at that point but you got someone under your uh, tutelage for a month. Is it, is it that coachable? Chess is extremely coachable. Uh, I wouldn't be able to put like a number on these things, right. uh, but the thing about chess and there are layers to this. So you can go online and do puzzles. The thing about puzzles is yeah, that's great for your pattern recognition. Another Thing that's great about chess is working on pattern recognition uh, but you can work on that but and, and you need to see the idea in order to find it in the future so you're learning the ideas but in a game itself nobody is tapping you on the shoulder and being like there's a puzzle here there's something right. available to you you need to be completely focused you know honing in on your opportunities and finding them yourself so with coaching it's not just about uh, it is teaching them specific ideas that they've never seen before. It's reinforcing those ideas, but it's also getting them in position to execute on those ideas so that when they are alone in going toe-to-toe with their opponent, that they spy them, even if it doesn't seem like it's available. So definitely coaching is essential to getting super hot. There's rare exception to that with people who have not had coaching there are engines in chess the engines are stronger than human players so if you want to see how well you play in the game you go put your game see what the engine says oh i made this blunder and this mistake oh but that was a good move here but the engine doesn't teach you the why it teaches you you know what went wrong but doesn't help your train of thought and i think that is what is essential in chess not just the rote okay here's what i here's a move i made a mistake here's the better move that doesn't help you find the move in the future. Right, just quick follow-up on that. Something I've been really curious about, and this is a, one of the questions in the, in the, or, or, or themes in the Queen's Gambit, that she seemed, again, I know it's fictional, but she seemed to have an aptitude for the game and the way her brain worked. Um, is there nature against nurture in this process? Like, are some people predisposed to being better chess players based on the way their brains work? That's the uh, question that's uh, as old as time, right? They're always trying to figure out the nature versus nurture conversation. And there's yeah. a very famous, in some ways, case study on this is the Polgar sisters from Hungary. Their father... We're just going to bring them up as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're covered in pretty much every book, right? In uh, David Epstein's book, uh, Range, they, there's a chapter on the Polgars. And so... It's a, it's a tough question to answer. Just because the Polar Sisters were able to become great chess players, that doesn't mean that if you replicate the experiment that um, others would be able to do it. And now Judah Polgar reached the top 10 in the world and she is the best female player in the history of chess. Amazing. Her sister, Susan, also a grandmaster and former women's world champion and now a coach at uh, Webster University of the United States. There are other sister, Sophia, she was an international master, one step below grandmaster. So in other words, all three sisters are amazing chess players. Does that mean that everybody can do that? No, I'm sure there's also um, a correlation to where you grow up, monetary uh, situation, right? right? They're, they're all socioeconomic status, all these things I'm sure play a part, but that's the 
example that people love, the case study that people love to go to. And I don't know. I don't have the answers. I mean, do I, you ever do you ever have a, a student, uh, a, a child uh, as one of your students who you kind of spot, like you see something in him or her that is kind of special in terms of chest aptitude? I see the thing is I take a broader approach to when I coach and I see the promise in the way they think. And to me, that's really essential. It's not about in this one game, they found this one move. It's the questions they ask or the way they sit and think about a position and they may make the wrong decision, but I'm like, well, that actually it's wrong in this specific example in in, this game. But I, I see where you're going with that. And that, I think, can be revealing. But I don't like to speculate on kids. And this happens all the time. Hey, there's this young kid who's doing well. Can they be the next Bobby Fischer? Can they be the next Magnus Carlsen? Can they be world champion? I'm like, let the kid be a 12-year-old. Yeah. That, that person is 12. Right. I, have, I am not in a position to assess their potential. And I understand it's very tempting to do that. We do that in every single sport. Is that the next LeBron James, right? right. Is mm-hmm. that the next... Uh, Kobe, Michael Jordan, whoever it is. And obviously, basketball is my favorite sport, so I keep (laughs) using basketball examples, but we never know, right? And so Uh um, I think I have seen promise in people for sure, but I don't know where that will lead them. And I try not to push anybody in that direction because for me, chess should be fun. It is fun. And so if that is the essential part of it, then I think the growing experience is great. Some people believe in more no, chess is not fun. This is a serious endeavor. Let's, let's push you through and get better. And that it's a different approach. And I'm not trying to claim that that one is worse, but for me, it's really about putting the quality over the quantity every single time. Excellent. Robert, we end, uh, wrap up our shows with two standard questions. We ask all of our guests. I'll ask the first one joke and do the second. How do you keep up on uh, staying current and smart about what's going on in business and all the interests you have professionally? right now? What kind of things you're reading or listening to or following that are important to you? I'm everywhere. And it helps that I have uh, friends like Zach Wiener who are constantly sending me things to look at. But if I'm anything in this world, it is curious. So I'm always looking things up. And I don't have, I'm not the person who latches on to a specific podcast or a specific writer. It's kind of strange, but I'm always uh, checking things out and reading everything I can get a hold on. So um, whether it's your tech crunch or whatever, I, I mean, seriously, Twitter is also a useful thing in that regard because I see hey, what is this article about? What's this company that I haven't heard of? Oh, this medical startup, that sounds interesting. So sure. I'm really kind of all over the place in that regard, but uh, I know that's not helpful. Like, hey, listen to this specific thing. <laughs> right. in, in some sure. ways it's good, right? Yeah. You should keep your ear on the wall looking for a variety of sources because you never know what interesting article or podcast to come across. Yeah. Um, The last question is um, about advice you give to rising entrepreneurs, especially having done a tech business. Before you do that, one thing we didn't mention, you've talked about a lot of guys, you did mention some women. Who are some of the women, either commentators or rising stars who people should be watching, watching for? So the women and then the advice you give to people who've kind of you know, looking for what's going to be next for them? Yeah, great question. I would say uh, in terms of female streamers in particular, the Botez sisters, Alexandra Botez, she's a close friend of mine. She actually has a, she has a strong chess background from Canada, went to Stanford, had uh, a business a startup that was in Y Combinator, and now she's uh, switched to streaming full-time. So definitely a 
very good friend of mine and she's a brilliant mind and other commentators that I am frequently collaborating with, Anna Rudolph, she's a Hungarian international master. We've commented on plenty of events uh, together. And honestly, in chess, it's quite easy just to do a, a quick Google search and you'll find it's not that big of a, a universe, but those two in particular are off the top of my head. And of course, Judith Polgar, she commentates, she no longer plays, she's retired, but she commentates high level events. And it is a pure delight hearing her speak about chess because her insight from uh, a practical point of view of this is what's happening in the game, but also her experience, you can't make that kind of stuff up. She has lived it as the rare uh, woman atop the world of chess who has beaten Gary Kasparov in yeah. tournament play. And of oh. course, Gary, you know, I didn't mention him specifically, he is an absolute legend who has branched out into so many different uh, disciplines. You know, he has made chess in no small part what it is. So you have to give him a shout out. And Maurice Ashley, by the way, uh, right. he recently had a, um, was highlighted in a commercial from Hennessy. And we did an event together, Maurice and I, with uh, the Wu-Tang Clan with a risen Jizza. So it was a really fun wow. event that we did recently. And Maurice is a longtime friend of mine. He is such an amazing ambassador for the game of chess. The first black chess grandmaster. He's in the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame. He's a very popular commentator himself. And I, oh, I'd be remiss not to mention Jennifer Shahadi, who is a very popular commentator. She's an author. She's a poker professional as well. She uh, runs an extremely popular poker podcast in addition to a chess podcast. And she is one of the most interesting people you could ever come across. She's in so many different fields. She's a writer um, and she just does so much stuff. And she's somebody with a pulse on like everything going on in this world and uh, someone I'm glad to be friends with and impressed by. And sorry, Joe, the other part of your question was- Your, your advice, the advice, other than be curious. So there are a couple of other things that you've told either people switching careers or looking to get started just in general. For sure, because chess- and Twitch streaming is an obscure profession. Try being a college student telling your parent, hey, you know, I've been going to university down this traditional path, but I'm just gonna go stream and see what it's like. Some of the most popular streamers, when they started out, they had 10, a couple dozen people watching them. And now you see them like, oh, that person has 12,000 concurrent viewers. Oh, they were always popular, but that's not true. Many of the most popular people have not always been that way. Sure, it's not always meritocratic. Nothing, sadly, in life is going to be. And there are definitely uh, people who you can make other people more successful by sending them raids, sending them your viewers and things like that, boosting them up. And sometimes we all need to step up. Okay. But I will say that you know, not giving up and being authentic are essential to doing what I do. And it's also true of commentating. I can't just be there and going through the motions and just, oh, like, here's what's going on in this chess game. People will tune out, will not enjoy that. I, more than anything, when I'm commenting, I love the game of chess and I love helping people learn what's going on. I see it as edutainment. You're hopefully being entertained by my wisecracks and my sort of uh, deadpan humor, but also you're learning about what's going on as the action unfolds. And you see that in sports, obviously with commentary, but in sports, you can't say, this is what is going to happen. That team made the shot, so this is what the other team's going to do. You don't have that sort of predictability or that sort of streamlined, here's where we're going to next, whereas chess you do. And I, to my very core, love what I do. And I think that being your authentic self, I know that's cliche, it may sound like a platitude, but it's really important in outward facing and with this public visibility, you, you can't just fake it till you make it often. You really have to just show who you are and hope that uh, it works out. Cool. Well, wow. 
You can't, you can't play chess without Hess. That's the one that we're going to spell. <laughs> can't spell chess without Hess, exactly. Um, that was terrific. Yeah. Um, so you play, Joe? Wait, wait, before, before we yeah. let him go, from, from the Queen's Gambit, do you play the Sicilian all the time? <laughs> so I actually almost never play the Sicilian defense because it is extremely sharp and tactical, and there's a ton of preparation you need to do. And for me, chess is most exciting when everything is new rather than home brewed. That is an essential part, but for me, I just like what's Fisher Random Chess, where the pieces on the first and last row, they're, um, they're mirror images of each other, but they're random. You don't know what the setup's going to be before the game. So the pieces move like a game of chess, but you can't, can't have memorized a series of moves. So for me, that is a bit more fun these days, but no, I do not play the Sicilian. There we go. All right, Joe, we got we got to like offer Robert the chance to play you, me, and Tom in a simul competition online. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And uh, here's the deal. We get all of our 16 pieces and we'll give you like three or four and, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> like a golf handicap. <laughs> I like your chances, I must admit, but I also okay. couldn't do that to Joe. You know, I've known Joe in a lo long time. I really appreciate his mentorship over the years and the friendship that he's provided. So Beating nice. Joe in a game of chess provides no satisfaction to me. So, Joe, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I've never heard anything, <laughs> anything bring satisfaction, but that's okay. Um, Tom, I, I hope you beat Joe. Okay. Go, Robert, where, where can people find you? Uh, and, and where should they be following everything that you're doing on the various social platforms? Yeah, I mean, on Twitch, I'm GM Hess, so twitch.tv slash GM Hess. Uh, if you go to twitch.tv slash chess, you will often find me there. I'm in chess.com. That's where I do most of my commentary. In fact, in an hour, I will be commentating on Twitch. So <laughs> I'm a regular there. You, if you watch chess, it's very likely that you've seen my face. Do stop by and say hi. And, you know, I try to continue my curiosity and be as well-versed. And that's, you know, we'll see yeah. where I am next. I can't promise that I'll be in chess forever. But what about Twitter? Twitter, I am also GM underscore Hess. Nice. There wow. God, cool. that was fun. That was fun, Joe. Our first grandmaster on the Cusp Show. We keep breaking I'm ground awesome. and breaking that ceiling. So, really? and Robert Hess in the same day. Well, last week we had one GM, yeah. like a general manager. This week we have another uh, GM. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so. good friends with Daryl Morey, and I actually yeah. uh, help give him chess lessons from time to time. But it was very funny when you know he was the GM of the Rockets, and he would we'd have a lesson, and he'd like go do something. And I was like, you know, from one GM to another, like here's, here's my unsolicited advice. So uh, yeah, the GM title, it makes its way around, but I'm, I'm very glad to be your first chess grandmaster. On there we show. Go. Cool. Yeah. Tom, wrap us up. All right. Well, Joe, next week, who's our guest? Uh, Magnus Carlson, right? Yeah, I think. Exactly. So Bobby Fischer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, well, we've been having a, a really fun conversation with a really interesting and um, very inspirational person, I would say, Robert Hess, um, grandmaster, chess, chess grandmaster. Yeah. Uh, the only one I've ever met, Joe. I, I assume uh, you're with me on that. Yeah. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. Um, we found out when we started the show that Robert and I were both four episodes in to the Queen's Gambit. So maybe we can have a Netflix party together to watch the end of the season. Oh, yeah. uh, and I wanna hear your commentary. Hey, real you know what? That's interesting. Have you, has that come up where like you could create something to, to parallel and talk about what's going on in the Queen's Gambit and watch it with people? 
so stream watches like those watch parties are very yeah. popular i personally thing is i have a hard time doing things unless i'm really invested in them so okay. i don't know how much i want to do that but I, I have considered it because i think people would appreciate just hearing from a awesome. chess player but it's all the rage these days so they'll get that satisfaction by the way the producer must have, whoever was the chess consultant to that show must that must have been a sweet gig gary kasparov Oh, was it? I, I didn't see that. Okay. Him and uh, Bruce Panolfini both were. So Bruce is wow. a long time coach. That's funny. Yeah. Anyway, um, Joe, I, I feel like if I don't actually say goodbye, this conversation will just keep going for another hour. So uh, Robert, th thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. On behalf of Columbia, it was a real pleasure to have you. And I urge everybody to check out GM Hess. I know in an hour, although this podcast will be out after this is live, but as he said, he's on a lot. I'm going to be checking you out on Twitch today. Uh, thanks for a great show, Joe. Thank you, Tom Cerny, behind the scenes for producing. Robert, good luck with all your endeavors. And at some point, uh, we'd like to see you on the Columbia campus with your chessboard and are ready for a round of simul with the Columbia crowd, okay? I would love that. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>